Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Let it speak loudly to us. Stir in us. Lord, I pray that you will make all of our hearts fertile soil. That you'll poke the finger of your word into us and plant seeds that will grow 30, 60, and 100 fold. Lord, so that we're not just gaining fruit or growing to offer fruit to the world around us. Fruit bearing seeds that reproduces. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, let it be a light. Let it challenge us. Lord, I pray that you prepare our hearts to be challenged, that none of us escape. Lord, the opportunity to have our toes stepped on a little bit. And Lord, through your mercy and grace, fill us with hope. We love you, Lord. Anoint me, Lord, that I am so flawed and that you would put your words in my mouth. Anoint me to speak your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So my parents ran an inner city youth ministry for a good portion of my teenage growing up, and it was multifaceted. It had a youth center, a church, a restaurant, a putt-putt course, and a Christian bookstore. And it was big enough to be too much, and it was small enough that there wasn't enough money to hire more help or to contract out very often, so my dad was always working. He wore every hat that a ministry could invent, but it gave me an opportunity to often be with him when he was building stuff. He was fixing this or building this or upgrading this. Often I got to stand there at the foot of a ladder, you know, underneath his work belt, you know, and just watch him work. And I held a very critical role for my dad. I was the official nail holder. Or screws or nuts or bolts or anything else that was small enough that needed to be handed to him one at a time. And I, I, just, I can still hear his voice. It echoes in my head. Nick, another screw. Okay. Nick, another one. Okay. It, another, okay. Thank you. This was my job. Now, it was kind of fun, but it got worse when I became the official board holder or iron door holder or thing that's leaning that has to be perfectly lined up. And I'm under it like this, you know, and it has to be, you get it, right where he wants it. All right, Nick, hold it right there. Right? And then... Inevitably, I hear that meant the screw fell down, and it was going to be another, I don't know, four minutes by the time he finds the screw, climbs the ladder, gets this thing, and I'm under, you know. And, then, and this happened more than once. There would be a time that he would get up there and he'd go, oh. I'm like PTSD in right now. He would, he would get up there and he'd go, Oh, I don't have the tool I need. Hold it right there. And he'd come down the ladder, and he would go across out of sight. <laughs> you know, over and over again. But one of the things I also remember him saying over and over again was if there was a time that I was unengaged, and I'm just watching him work, he would turn around, and he would look at me, and he'd go, get your hands out of your pockets, son. Get your hands out of your pockets. He would say this to me, Anytime, he'd turn and look. And maybe, maybe as a man, he wanted his son to have a certain air of not being lazy. Maybe there was an aspect that he wanted to make sure that I was ready. Because something might fall. I might need to grab the ladder. I may need to block something from falling on my head. He needed to me to be engaged. 
You need to be, to be ready to take action at any point. And as we're jumping into our passage tonight, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter opens with the idea of, I'm stirring you up. I'm shaking you out of complacency. I need you to live. God's people need to live with their hands out of their pockets. Paul seems to echo this in Galatians. Chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. If we'll live with our hands out of our pockets, we will reap. Let's jump into our text this morning. 2 Peter chapter 2 that Ben covered last week talked about this internal attempt to compromise the church through false prophets. And it's dangerous because it happens from the inside. These saboteurs, right? And with that in mind, we're going to jump in to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. So we can assume that 1 Peter is the first letter. 2 Peter is the second letter. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So his goal is to stir us up, to rattle us a little bit, to to shake us out of our conformity, to kind of jar us back to, to consciousness. Verse two, that you should remember. So he's saying, by way of reminder, that you should remember. He's trying to communicate something here. He's trying to wake us up. He's trying to bring something to mind. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, those prophets of the Old Testament, and command of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The holy prophets, which is contrasting intentionally, chapter 2's false prophets. So Peter is about to specifically lead his readers. I'm giving you kind of a road sign. This is where we're going. He is specifically leading his readers to remember the prophecies of the Old Testament that talked about a coming day of the Lord. And it was a day of the Lord that was supposed to strike fear in us. And it was a day of the Lord that was supposed to bring hope to us. It would be this day where God's judgment would be poured out on humanity. And this was a good thing, and it was a terrifying thing. It was terrifying because it was against all unrighteousness. And it was good because finally everything would be made right. Not only would the evil be stopped, but everything that that evil robbed would now be restored. And Peter is leading in that direction. I'm giving you a heads up on that. And Peter is saying, I want you to look back to the prophets that are looking forward over our heads to a coming day. Isaiah gives us one of those examples. It is throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 66, 15 through 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire in his chariots like the whirlwind, like a hurricane. To render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword. With all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. Peter is saying, remember the prophets. Yeah, we have false prophets among us. They're trying to tickle your ears. Let's remember what prophets, what God was speaking through his people. And then, on top of this, remember the verse he says, to the prophets of old and from the Lord and Savior. Which means that Jesus himself is confirming the word of those prophets. 
God himself, sovereign God of history, past, present, and future, is confirming what they said is going to happen. We can take this to the bank. You can bet the farm on this. Peter is saying, remember what they're saying, because this is a reality. It is concrete ahead of us. Jesus does confirm this. Matthew 13, 41 through 42. The Son of Man, referring to himself, will send angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. His apostles picked up on this and continued to teach Jesus' words. Look at 2 Thessalonians verse 1, 6-8. Paul is talking to people that are being persecuted. And he is referring to their persecution, saying that those who are hurting them will not get away with it before a just God. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 23 out of 27 New Testament books talk about this coming time this return, this day of the Lord, this final judgment. There are actually almost 300 references in the New Testament to it. We can take it to the bank. This is coming. But their assurance is under attack. And this time, it's not under attack from an internal source. It's under attack from an external source. Let's move to verse 3. Knowing this, hey, that's the title of our series. Knowing this, remember this, pay attention right now. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So we have false prophets working from the inside, and he's saying, soon we're going to have scoffers working from the outside. The church is under attack. Isn't that true today? Yeah, we're under attack. Proverbs talks about a scoffer. I want to kind of like unpack what is a biblical scoffer. So Proverbs talks about three kinds of people. You have the wise, you have the fool, and you have the scoffer. I won't explain the wise. I think you understand that. Those who live according to God's will for any particular situation. And then there's the fool. And a fool, in biblical terminology, is one of the worst insults you could lay on somebody. Jesus says, hey, you call someone a fool, you are yourself in danger of judgment. Like, you are speaking a terrible condemnation over someone to call them a fool. Because the Proverbs fool is not someone who is ignorant. He's not someone who just didn't hear what they were supposed to hear. A Proverbs fool is someone who knows, who has had every opportunity, and has made a conscious internal choice to reject it and go their own way and do their own thing. Proverbs says you could hit a fool a hundred times, and you're still not going to change their mind. Because they've seen. They know. And yet they still walk towards their own destruction. A scoffer, according to Proverbs, is a fool who is vindictive. They don't just go off and do their own thing. They turn around and they're malicious to the wise. And so they are not only running for destruction, but they are heaping on judgment from God. Scoffers are going to come and they're going to scoff. And what is their lifestyle? It's a lifestyle of hedonism, of pursuing their own fleshly desires, their own worldly inclinations. And what's their message? They will say, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, ever since those of old died, 
What has happened? All things, they're just continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What's the message of the scroffer? The grass is greener on our side. Let go of this accountability that, oh, he's going to come back someday. It's so much easier to take on just complacency and just enjoy life like we do. And what's their evidence? If he hasn't come yet, he's not coming. The elapsed time. You know, it was, it was like 3,500 years between Jesus' first prophecy and Jesus showing up. Maybe it's longer. It was a long time. Nothing has changed since creation. What's their accusation of God in this? Think about that. What are they accusing God of here? They're accusing God of two things. They're tempting believers to be apathetic by accusing God of being inactive and apathetic. He doesn't get involved with human history. He really doesn't care about human history. Someone talks like that, you need to get out of the way because lightning's coming. And you know what? Peter's not going to respond through philosophy. He's not going to respond by raising his voice and getting red in the face. He's not going to respond through arguing science or archaeology or even really a lot of theology. Peter's response is nothing more than to discuss the attributes of God. Let me show you why they're wrong just by telling you about the character of our God. This is so beautiful. He's going to unpack four characteristics of who our God is. Oh, to God be the glory. What's Peter's response? Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that's the language of fools, according to Proverbs, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the very word of God. And that by means of these, that's his word and water, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. God isn't involved in human history. I think you forgot about something. Almighty God, through his very word, created the heavens and the earth. And he called the earth to come out of the water. And he is reminding us, Peter is reminding us that God is, number one, he is creator. And if he is creator, he has every right to rulership, sovereign rulership. He is creator. And that creator, by means of the same water and the same word, judged humanity. We need to get over the cuteness of the animals in the flood story. And we need to stand arrested at the recognition that sovereign God carried out a sentence of execution against all of humanity. That should rattle us. Thank you, God, for his grace that he would commit never to wipe out all of humanity again by sign of his covenant rainbow. How serious is God against sin? He doesn't play. There is holiness and there is everything that is scoffing against his very character without in between. 
contrary to what the scoffers are saying, God does interfere with human history. And his justice holds sinners accountable. And yet they willingly ignore this attribute of God. Why? So they can give license to their sinful desires. Isn't that scary? Let's keep going. Verse 7. Peter continues his argument. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, the same word that created mankind, the same word that judged it with with water, is also the same word that will judge again, this time through fire. Peter's responding to the scoffer's accusation that God must not be coming if he's not here already. He's just apathetic against humanity. He's uninvolved. By reminding them that God is creator, and God is just, who will by no means take his hands off and not react to sin. Is God inactive? Who denying Christ's return and God's judgment is mortally dangerous. This terrible day, which will fulfill the oracles of the prophets, the testimony of these apostles, and Jesus' word himself, is coming. And it's coming for scoffers, and it's coming for false prophets, and it's coming for sinners. And it's coming for all those who deny the lordship of Jesus. But Peter uses these next two attributes of God for hope. Because a people under persecution, a people amidst suffering, they need to know who God is. Second Peter 3.8 But do not overlook this fact, knowing this, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Let me put this in, in English. God has existed eternity that way on the timeline and he's existed eternity that way on the timeline. Can man confine God to his limits? Can we wrap our minds around that kind of God? Or can we find security in the God who sees more than we do? Can we find hope in the recognition that God is bigger than the situations that we're in? Who is like our God? We can expect that our God is in control. So God is creator, God is just, God is eternal. Boy, this is an argument that God is actively involved. But now he's going to turn to the accusation that God is apathetic, that he's uncaring, that he is unconnected and uninterested in what's going on in humanity. And it is a right hook if ever there was one. It's so beautiful. Number four, God is merciful. Second Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord... Get a, wait, wait. Let's get back to the context. Judgment, fire, coming soon, right? Quaking in our boots. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, some have used this word to argue universalism, the idea that everyone gets saved in the end. 
which is ridiculous because the whole rest of the chapter is saying, by the time you reach the day of the Lord, it's too late to repent. And there will be a division. Although our Father is patient. Oh, let's think about patience for a second. You know, the, the word patient that he uses in the Greek is macrothumeo. It's two words together. It means large, vast, huge anger. Patience. And it's the idea that God has this enormous capacity to wait and store up wrath instead of just getting angry at the drop of a hat. He can wait and build up and allow that to fill this vast capacity that he has before it spills over into wrath. And it's greater than we can imagine. If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, God is patient. He is patient, 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 patient that he puts up with us. Some of us, we're, we're so ready for God to come. Please make it all right. Please end the suffering. We're so ready to be in your presence. But to believe that God is dragging his feet or that he is indifferent is for us to misunderstand. Pay attention right now. It's for us to misunderstand this colossal truth that is roaring the recognition of his love. It is this. We cannot misunderstand God's patience as apathy. We can't misunderstand his patience as apathy. Every day that God withholds his rightful justice and judgment is a day of unfathomable grace against mankind, against us. Every day that we wake up and it's another day he hasn't come to execute fire and judgment is a day that we can remember that he's patient and he's loving towards those who don't know him yet. That is a merciful God. His waiting is an active gift of grace for the sinner, for the scoffer, so that they have the absolute perfect amount of time so that those he calls will come to know him. So that there is hope for the person you've been praying for. Let's get over the fact that it's been a while and remember that the person we're praying for, it may be them God's waiting on. And we've got to get over this. We need to be so grateful every morning that we wake up that God's patience is revealing his love. The very lie that God is apathetic for his patience stands in direct opposition to the truth. Romans 2.4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His love is boundless. But his patience isn't because that would make him unjust. We cannot have a justice system that never executes punishment. It would be unjust. There has to be a reckoning for our sin. There has to be a reckoning for those who are hurt and damaged and robbed. There has to be a reckoning for every rebellion and rejection against God and his holiness. Exodus 34, 6-7 is critical because God is pronouncing the definition of his name. He gave Moses his name back in Exodus 3, Yahweh. 
And now God is unpacking his very character for Moses. So we need to pay attention. Look how God describes himself. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? How about you? But that's scary. Whoa. Thank you, Jesus, that those who call on you are free from the curse. And you remember, we're not under the curse of Satan. We're under the curse of God. It is God's judgment. And those who have called on him and repented are free from the curse through the power of Jesus and his cross and his expression of love and grace towards us that he would count us righteous before that holiness. What kind of God do we serve? Every Every day that God withholds his justice is a loving mercy towards sinners. These are words of hope for our loved ones. These are words of hope for our friends. These are words of hope for our enemies. Yes, it's hope for scoffers too, as some of us once were. Second Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He's referencing Jesus. Peter is having this memory of hearing Jesus say these very words like a thief in the night. He's quoting Matthew 24, 42 through 44. Jesus is speaking. He says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this. Hey, that sounds like Peter. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready. You must live with your hands out of your pockets. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is a threatening illustration. It's threatening. And it evokes a sense of urgency, the sense of preparedness, of watchfulness, of expectancy. To be ready for action. This day of the Lord is described by Peter as having two occurrences. And they should make us pale. Two occurrences. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The first thing that happens is the heavens representing the stars, the galaxies, the heavenly bodies. They are going to pass away with a roar and the elements literally meaning ones in a row, like an alphabet or a numerical system, ones in a row, talking about the very structure of the universe is going to be ripped apart. With a roar, there will be an immense, deafening, unspeakable uncreation as the universe dissolves from the inside out at the very word of God. And the second thing that's going to happen 
where God has spoken, or Peter is speaking of the physical, he's also mentioned the heart. Because he says that our works will be exposed. On that same day, we will stand alone before the judgment seat. And our heart motives behind every thought, every word, and every action are going to be exposed and they're going to be examined. Thank you, Jesus, for counting us as righteousness. That terrible, wonderful day will soon come. And what's around the corner in referring to this day is like a semi in your lane on a foggy morning. You see, like, it's hazy. The image is sort of blurry. We've got all this bowls of wrath and thousand years, millenniums, and is it future tense, present tense, past tense? How do we, it's sort of hazy, it's out there. And yet, it is an oncoming concrete reality. Our blurriness of vision doesn't belay the fact that it is real. You know what? From me to you in a heart to heart, I really believe that every believer, I believe that every believer, I think we feel this deep down inside. I think we know that there will be a time that everything is made right. I think we know that there will be a reckoning. I think it's in us. Paul seems to talk about it in Romans 8, verse 18. 25, and I had to clip a little bit for time's sake, but I hope you'll follow me. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not, our sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What, what's happening in the, in the pains of childbirth? There's an expectation. Something big is coming. It's going to change everything. It's new. A new beginning. And we feel this too. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this Hope. Say hope. I always wanted to do that. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Patience. The biblical understanding of patience is not wishful thinking. I I hope this is going to happen. The biblical understanding of hope is expectancy. I'm banking on it happening. I'm prepared for it to happen. In South Louisiana, you guys have like a little bit of expectancy when someone starts talking about a hurricane and you still rob the shelves at Walmart. (laughs) It might be a one, it might be a five. We'll decide the day before. Who knows? And we have so much more in expectancy that the prophets have spoke by the word of God, that Jesus has confirmed as God, and the apostles teaching what Jesus said have confirmed it again. This is an oncoming reality that we have to wrestle with. 
And it's a reality of hope that everything will be made right. That God's going to fix it. Do you struggle with patience like me? You know, it's easy to become discouraged. And discouragement rolls into frustration. And frustration kind of just rolls into being distracted. And distracted into apathy. Right? But Jesus was faithful to his first coming. And he will be faithful to his second coming. Let's be honest. The truth is God is not the one who is at risk of being apathetic. We are. And we need to be stirred up. We need to be shaken out of our hypnosis to remember that there is a time when everything will be made right, when everything will be put in line, that every injustice will be resolved, that there is this hope in us that we are going to bow at the feet of a known God, a known God. We will run into the arms of a father who sent, we will recognize, having known it since the moment we cried out to him for salvation in repentance. And we'll be able to wrap ourselves up in a known, loving father. Ah! Sons and daughters of the king, look towards that day with hope. Our hope in Christ's return gives us assurance that everything will be made right. Our hope calls us to holiness. Our hope transcends our temporary painful circumstances. Our hope moves us to being willing to sacrifice in everything here so we can gain everything there. Our hope places our eyes on Jesus, who is the king of peace, whose joy is our strength, and who gives us purpose. We must live with our hands out of our pockets because our hope keeps us loving. It does. And our hope keeps us giving. Oh, that we would live, not just with expectancy, but that we would not grow weary of doing good. Why? Oh, if we're patient, we will see the fruit. Hope gives us anticipation, which should keep us in this tension, stirring us up to stay vigilant, to stay steadfast, and to stay faithful. May we be, who? may we be as loving and as patient and as active as our Heavenly Father is patient in the lives of the people around us. Because if He is patient... When we're patient, we're aligning with his heart. That's cool. We are, he is sharing his attribute of patient mercy with us. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. We become apathetic and complacent when we lose our hope. And when we lose our hope, we lose our purpose. Maybe you don't feel like your contributions, the small things you do, the the pain at forwards, the words of encouragement, the verses you send, 
the encouragement with the, the, the waitress or the waiter or at the checkout line or the things that you, you may say or do. Maybe, maybe you feel like your contributions, they don't get any traction. They don't go anywhere. They're so small. I'd like to leave it with a really cool little story. In World War II, there was a bomber flying over Germany. And in the heat of the situation, it took on a lot of gunfire. In fact, it was hit in the gas tank many times and did not explode. Shocked, they made it back to the airfield where the engineers took apart the gas tank and they fished out 11 undetonated shells. 11. They opened up the shells to find that there was no explosives in them. 11 empty shells except for one. And it had a scrap of paper in it. And it simply said this. This is the best we can do for now. Because there was an underground movement by the Czechs. And one of them had gotten his way into the munitions factory in Germany. And the best he could do was to let some shells pass by in his job of putting explosives in. And 11 of those shells hit that plane. We bring the small that we can do in the natural. And our God does the rest. It's never been our job to bear fruit. It's never been our job. Our job is to be faithful. And it is our God who brings the harvest. We're not Lord of the harvest. He is. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due time we'll see fruit if we do not give up. I, I, I pride myself in this. That the people that are heroes in my life are not the people that are really good at something. The people that are heroes in my life are the people that just don't quit. No matter how much they're beaten, no matter how many times they, they get knocked down, they just keep dragging themselves up bloody. Those are my heroes. That's who I want to be. Probably because I'm not very much like that. But that's what Peter is doing. He's stirring us up. We need to remember that if we'll just be faithful, if we'll just keep getting up, who is the righteous man? The one that gets up after he's knocked down seven times. That God does the work. Oh, church, my brothers and sisters, my beloved, like, let's be faithful. Recap. Scoffers may try to tempt Christians with complacency. But Peter reminds them of four of God's attributes. He just discusses God's character. That's so cool. God spoke and by a human timeline began because he's creator. He judged humanity's sin in the flood. He is just. He isn't bound by time like we are. He is eternal. He is choosing to wait because he is merciful. His judgment is imminent. The day of the Lord fills a believer with healthy fear, but also hope. And that hope keeps us loving, and that hope keeps us giving. So I have two challenges for you. Simple, practical challenges that I'd like you to do after today. After you've heard the word of God, and I hope that Peter, by God speaking through Peter, stirred us all up a little bit. And the first one is so challenging. I challenge you to forgive someone you've been holding on to unforgiveness with. How dare we stand before the Lord who gave us mercy with our hand on the throat of someone else. May we forgive.
Search your hearts. And the second one, and this one's fun. The next time you spend time with the Lord, in your prayer time, your devotionals, and your Bible reading, I ask you, write a letter to Jesus describing what you're most excited about heaven. And watch how it fills you with hope, with expectancy, with anticipation, with conviction. Let us put this day in front of us so that it motivates who we are. And may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be faithful. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace, your boundless mercy that you would love us enough to wait one more day. Thank you, Lord, that you are creator. You are just. You are eternal. And you are merciful. Keep us giving. Keep us loving. Because we can't do it with our small human gifts. All we can do is give you the best we can do. And Lord, I pray that you'll begin to show your people your fruit. Remind us that you are working and active around us. And if you choose not to, may we be faithful anyway. We love you, Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for the cross. Anoint each of us to be ministers this week, wherever we go and whatever we're doing. Bring to mind creative ideas of how we can be a blessing, of how we can plant seeds, of how we can work in what we can do so that you can work. <laughs> Lord, we will show up, Lord, believing that you're going to show off. Heavenly Father, we give it all to you. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Love you, living word. Thank you. All right, so if y'all can surprise me, I can surprise Dom. Uh, this is totally not planned other than just a few moments ago, but wasn't that a powerful, clear exposition of God's word? And I just want to say, this is our youth pastor. This is the brother that's teaching your teenagers God's word. Would you thank God for, for him and for his wife and his family? Let's pray for Pastor Don. This is pastor appreciation, right? Y'all can appreciate me, but I'm, I'm appreciating him. I just want to say this real quick. He taught our kids for the last, our students, for the last uh, several weeks on how we got the Bible and why we can trust the Bible. And that is so powerful. We have a youth pastor that takes the time to do that so that our kids can trust God's word as we do. So let's, let's stretch our hands towards Pastor Dom. God, I thank you for Dominic and for Jackie and their family. God, I thank you for their commitment to our church and commitment to your kingdom, commitment to our students. God, I pray that you would multiply your grace upon him, grace upon grace upon grace upon him and his family. Lord, lift their burdens, encourage them, and Lord, and show them the fruit for their labor. God, help them to see, God, that the work that they're giving is not in vain, that you are using them to shape the hearts, our hearts, here this morning, but to shape the hearts of the next generation. Lord, we love them and we appreciate them. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.